Hey, my name is Colton. I'm one of the serving leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope that you can lean in and enjoy this message. And as Jordan said, we are planting a church, hopefully on the east side of Columbus, called Cross and Crown. And uh, that's a bit of a mouthful, but we think that name captures our message. Our message is the same message with which Jesus came preaching, which is the gospel of the kingdom. And so we are excited about this journey. And the vision for Cross and Crown is we want to be a spirit-filled, Jesus-centered, multi-ethnic community. Isn't that good? Come on, somebody. That's, that's good stuff. Spirit-filled, Jesus-centered multi-ethnic. And, and today what I want to do is I want to take the first part of that vision and unpack it for you a little bit by considering this question, what does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? If the sermon series we were, we're currently in had a baby with the sermon series that you were previously in, I think that offspring would be this message. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? And I know this is Jordan and Courtney's desire for ethos, but ultimately, this is God's goal for every community, that the Holy Spirit would animate everything that we do, and Christians and Christian community would be characterized by an utter dependence upon the presence and power of God. Now, I grew up in a very loud, very sweaty Pentecostal church, right? (laughs) And so for us, the measure of the Spirit was how long service lasted. Anybody come from that kind of church? It was like for us, the weirder things got, the more the spirit was on the move, right? So we'd have people running around, the women be in the back waving their flags. Some dude would bust out the shofar. Anybody know about the shofar? It's like that ram's horn thing. So old boys in the back blowing the shofar and we're all standing around like, this is fine. This is totally fine. Everything's fine. Maybe, maybe for you, you come from a church on the opposite end of the spectrum where in gathered worship, there wasn't much sign of the spirit at all. You believed in Father, Son, and Holy Bible. You left that Holy Spirit stuff to all the weirdos. You know, during worship, you'd have one hand in your pocket and the other hand clinging onto your coffee like that was some kind of Holy Spirit repellent, right? <laughs> and... And I was actually on staff at, the first church I was on staff at here in Columbus was a church plant and it was a reformed Southern Baptist church. And I, you know, I grew up, like I said, raging Pentecostal. And I remember walking into this place thinking like, y'all aren't even saved. Like they weren't moving. I've heard Southern Baptist called the frozen chosen. Anybody heard that? They're family to me, and I am so grateful to God for my time at that church, the way that he just refined my theology and, and gave me just a, a sincere love for the gospel. Now, now, wherever it is that you find yourself on that spectrum, perhaps you're new to this church thing, and you're like, what is this dude talking about? Wherever it is that you fall on that spectrum, I want you to know that you are welcome here, and we hope that you make yourself feel right at home at Ethos. But I have come to believe that being a spirit-filled church is about so much more than how you get down during worship. From beginning to end, the Christian life is life in the spirit. Jesus understood salvation to be such a supernatural occurrence that the only words he had to describe it was he would say that you must be born again. And he would, uh, in John chapter three, he contrasts this new birth with our natural birth. And he says that in order to be born again, you must be born of the spirit. So therefore, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not a set of beliefs. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not even the lifestyle that you lead. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is whether or not you have been filled with the Spirit. Jesus says you've been reborn. 
made new. Everything about you is new now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul outlines the operation of the Spirit, particularly in the life of the church, he starts by making first things first when he says in verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, salvation is literally a miracle that is only enacted by the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus sending the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 that gave birth to the church, and it was his intention for the church to be sustained by that same Spirit. So the question I want us to wrestle with then is how do we embody this? How do we be and continue to become a church that is entirely dependent upon the presence and power of the Spirit? Well, let's turn to God's word for the answer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we're going to hang out. And if you're physically able, I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word. Um, This is just a way to ready our hearts and to, to say with our bodies what we hope to be true in our hearts, which is, God, your word is true, and we want to receive of it today. A couple of rules for the road before we dive into the text. Uh, I do want to define some terms for you very quickly. During this talk, I'm going to use the word Pentecostal and charismatic sort of synonymously. There are some pretty distinct theological differences, but when I use those words, essentially what I'm saying is a stream of Christianity that places a particular emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, Uh, Jordan gave me 35 minutes, but I somehow have several hours worth of notes. So the more amens I get today, the shorter I will be. If anybody's hungry and wants to get to brunch, y'all got to shout me down. I'm an insecure preacher, so if you're quiet, somebody talk back to me. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I figured that if we want to become a spirit-filled church, it would do us well to take our cues from a spirit-filled church. This is the church in Thessalonica, much like the one that you're sitting in. Paul writes this letter. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. I'm reading from the NIV. It says this, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's good news, amen? He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. John Stott in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians actually says it would be appropriate to reorder these three things and instead of power, Holy Spirit, and conviction, you could say power, conviction, and Holy Spirit because power and conviction are the fruits or the things that emanate from the Holy Spirit. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. I got a five-point sermon today, but if I had a six-point, it would be defiant joy, a joy that isn't dictated by our circumstances, a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Wouldn't it be a thing if that's what Ethan was known for, the Lord's message rang out from you. I'm praying that for cross and crown. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. We're almost done. They tell us how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's close our Bibles, open our hearts, pray, and ask God to bless his word. Father, we love you. We thank you for your presence that we feel even now. 
Spirit of God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the truth of your word so that we might be free to render to Jesus the worship that he is due. Spirit, I pray that you would speak a specific word, a better sermon than the one that I'm about to preach to the hearts of every person in here. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. We love you and we thank you. And it's in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in the rest of our time together, I'm just going to point out five characteristics, five attributes that I believe are true of a spirit-filled church. If y'all are ready, give me a good amen. The first is this, supernatural power. Any note takers in the room? Super, if you're taking notes, write that down, supernatural power. God, in Isaiah 66, asked this question that as a church planter is literally haunting me. In verse one, the Lord says, what kind of house will you build for me? What kind of habitation for my presence will you build for me? In other words, what kind of church will you build for me? And a lot of churches strive to be known for their production, or perhaps they long to be known for their social media following, or maybe some they long to be known for the cool shoes and charisma of their preachers. And none of those things are bad things, but God gave the church his spirit so so that we might be supremely known for our power, a power that ultimately points to something beyond ourselves. Paul says in verse five of our text today that the gospel came to the Thessalonians in power and in the Holy Spirit. Somebody shout power. Power. Say it better than that. Say power. Power. The word in the Greek there is the word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. So in essence, Paul is saying that the gospel came in the sort of power that was explosive in nature. Christianity is quite literally exploding across the globe in Africa and Asia and then Latin America. According to the latest edition of the World Christian Encyclopedia, there's presently 644 million charismatic Christians across the globe. According to our current rate, they suspect or they're projecting that there will be over one billion spirit-filled Christians by 2050. But it is interesting to note that in the Western world, particularly here in America, Christianity is in crisis and by all indications appears to be on the decline. 44 million Americans have stopped attending church over the past 25 years. Upwards of one million young people will walk away from their faith this year because the kind of Christianity they've seen seen seems old and irrelevant. The hashtag ex-Christian has almost 700 million views on TikTok and was assigned more than 70,000 posts on Instagram. Now, if we want to see the church flourish in our day, we must recover the explosive supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, how do we do that? I'm so glad you asked. There's a lot to say here. But let me give you two things that will uh, enable the people of God, his church, to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit. The first is we should become people of his presence. 
people of his presence. We know theologically that God is omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere all at once, and so we should take great comfort in that, knowing that God will never leave us nor forsake us. He's right, right here with us, but God wants to be known in a particular, intimate, close sort of way. We would call this the manifest presence of God. This is what God wants for us. He doesn't want to be known as some abstraction. God wants us to, to know him intimately, powerfully. The great work of the Holy Spirit is to make God the Father and God the Son and experience reality in your life. Stephen Land, in his book, Pentecostal Spirituality, says that the essence of the charismatic movement is we believe, and I say we collectively because ethos, we are a spirit-filled church, we believe in the lived reality of faith. Lived, and that's what the Holy Spirit is attempting to, the Holy Spirit mediates or makes real the presence of God in our lives. The Holy Spirit wants you to taste and experience intimacy with God the Father and God the Son. I come to church to meet with God's people. I come to church to be nourished by God's word, but you better believe I come to church because I want to encounter God's presence, amen? Psalm 16 says that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. A quote by a man named Richard Owen Roberts. He says, the sobering truth is this. The greatest hindrance to the growth of Christianity is the absence of the manifest presence of God in the life of the church. If we want to see the supernatural power of God on the move at Ethos, we must become presence junkies. We gotta be like Moses in Exodus when he says, God, if your presence don't, doesn't go with me, I don't wanna be there. He goes on to say this. He says, how will the nations know that we are your people? apart from your, how will the city know that we are the people of God apart from the presence of God? We must become people of presence. The second thing is we must become people of great expectation. God will meet you in your place of expectation. We see this truth threaded throughout scripture, but it's probably no more beautifully depicted than in the story of the woman with the issue of blood. In Luke chapter eight, this unnamed woman, we're told, had a discharge of blood that lasted for 12 years. Surely she was weak and depleted in her body physically, but she also would have been ostracized communally and spiritually. She would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Luke tells us that she went to every doctor in the city, but instead of getting better, she actually got worse. Doctors ain't cheap, so she got worse and she got broke. But one touch from Jesus is all it takes. She has the faith in her heart to say, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, then I would be made whole. She touches his hem and she's instantly healed. Jesus feels the power go out of his body and he turns around and he says, who touched me? Now this is interesting because at the time Jesus was literally surrounded by throngs of people. He was like, just, he was like a group of girls at a Justin Bieber concert. Like the guy, everybody was touching him and so the question is curious and the disciples respond, Jesus, what are you talking about? Literally everyone is touching you, which begs the question, if everyone was touching Jesus, why was only one woman healed? It's because she was the only one that expected to be healed. When her faith touched what her hand reached out for, 
She was healed in a moment. God will meet you in your place of expectation. Now, I want to be very deliberate and pastoral here. What I'm not saying is that God can't move on your behalf even when your faith is failing, even when your faith is weak. And surely I am not saying that you can manipulate God into doing whatever it is that you want him to do if you just believe hard enough. I have a very high view of the sovereignty of God and I believe that his ways are better and higher than our ways. But there is this undoubtable truth in the Bible that God honors expectation. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers. Actually, this is a true story. I tried to get a tattoo of Charles Spurgeon's face on my arm, but Elise was like, nah, dude, I'm not gonna look at another dude's face on your arm. So I was like, all right. Charles Spurgeon says this, I love this. He says, God's mighty work, wherever he has done any great thing, It has been done by someone who has had a very great faith, somebody who had expectation. I do believe at this moment that if God willed it, every soul in this room would be converted now. Let it be, Lord. If God chose to put out the operation of his own mighty spirit, not the most stubborn heart would be able to stand against it. He will do as he pleases and none can stay his hand. Get this. Well, says one, I do not expect to see any great things. Then, my dear friend, you will not be disappointed, for you will not see them. But those that expect them shall see them. People of great faith do great things. God will meet you in your place of expectation. When you come to church, do you expect to encounter the living God? When you come to church and you pray for the sick, do you expect them to be healed and to recover? We've been living out of a place of doubt and lack for so long. I want us to get back to a place of urgency and expectation. Let me say it to you this way. What if I were to walk home this afternoon and my wife Elise met me at the door and she said, Shane, I'd like a kiss. And I responded to her by saying, well, I'm open to that. I'm open. Let me me pray about it and get back to you. Openness in marriage is just enough to get you a divorce. I'm open to that. This is, but this is our posture before God. God, if you want to move, we're open to that. God, if you want to heal, we're open to that. Openness counts for nothing in the kingdom. God isn't looking for those who are open. God is looking for those who are expectant. In the kingdom of God, it's the hungry who get fed. God will meet you in your place of expectation. Here's the second thing, second characteristic that we hope to be true of a spirit-filled church. The first was supernatural power. The second is abiding love. Paul goes on to say in verse five that the gospel came not only in power and from the Holy Spirit, but also with deep conviction is how the NIV rendered it. Did anybody's Bible say full assurance? I like that translation a little bit more because this is the goal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to give us full assurance in the goodness of our God. The Holy Spirit wants to give us full assurance that he is a promise-keeping God and can move in power and demonstration and that there is nobody too far gone beyond what he can reach. There is nothing too far broken beyond what he can repair. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit wants us to give us full assurance that God loves us, that he is ours and we are his and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. As the song Blessed Assurance goes, Jesus is mine. Jesus, the Lord wants us to be fully assured that the Father's love is unwavering. It is not wearied by our sin. 
Paul is essentially saying here that it's the Holy Spirit that lets you know how loved you truly are. Some of you in this room this morning might consider yourself unlovable. You'd say, Shane, that sounds so good, but you don't know me, man. I've done some things. I, uh, I've said some things I wish I could unsay. I've done some things I wish I could take back, but I want you to know that God's love for you is unwavering. He wants you to know how loved you really are. Elsewhere in Romans chapter five, verse five, Paul says it this way. He says, the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You know, as Christians, we believe a lot of crazy things. We believe that God is somehow simultaneously one God that has eternally existed in three people. Try to wrap your mind around that. We believe and worship a dead guy who walked out of his grave. We believe in signs and wonders and miracles. But as a little boy growing up, I bought into all of that. I had no problem with any of that stuff. The thing that was an absolute affront to my faith was God's seeming insistence to be known to us as a father. Daddy issues are a dime a dozen, which makes it seem like God is sort of being a little reckless here, doesn't it? Can we be honest in church on a Sunday? I had a really fractured relationship with my dad. My dad was an abusive alcoholic my entire life. My dad was a militant atheist, but I came to tell you today that just before my father passed away, he passed away of stomach cancer about five years ago, but just before he passed away, he gave his life to Jesus. Come on, somebody. But nevertheless, I... I had a really, really, my, my relationship with my dad was characterized by distance and abuse, so obviously, consequently, I had all of these gross projections onto God, like what kind of father he must be in light of my relationship with my earthly father. And it wasn't until I was filled with the Holy Spirit that I was moved beyond my feeble and fractured attempts to understand God as Father and actually experienced his love. It wasn't until that I was filled with the Holy Spirit that God wrapped me in his embrace and held me to his chest close enough to hear him breathe. It is the Holy Spirit that makes real to you the reality that God is Father. It is the Holy Spirit that makes known to you that there is a love like you've never known it before. We do not experience God as Father by reason alone. We must experience it because the love of the Father has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul again, Romans chapter eight, verse 15, he says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by this spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Being a spirit-filled church isn't just about what God does through you. It's about what God does in you. Are you walking confidently in your sonship or your daughtership, if that's even a word? Are you, do you know, do you believe in the depths of your being that God loves you and he will never let you go? Here's a quick story about a guy named Sandy Miller who was actually the pioneer of the Alpha Course. He was the vicar of Holy Trinity Church in London and Sandy Miller had an experience of the Holy Spirit that made real to him 
the reality of the love of God. And I love this story because Sandy said that he was overwhelmed, overcome, like the tangible love of God was, was washing over him to the point that the weight of it was bearing down on him and Sandy was overcome with emotion. God's love was so real in that moment. And uh, he heard the voice of the Lord speak to him. And he said, Sandy, actually Sandy prayed to God first. He said, God, I, I, am, I am awash in this love. I am so grateful. I wish there was a way that I could love you in return. And in response, Sandy heard the Lord say to him, wouldn't it be great if you had a different language to let me know how much you love me? And Sandy said, yeah, Lord, that would be amazing. And Sandy began to speak with other tongues. Here's the reason why I tell you all that, right? We believe uh, as a church, as Ethos Church, we believe in the full operation of the supernatural gifts of the spirit. We believe in speaking in tongues, which is a, a, a personal prayer language. We believe in gifts of prophecy and word of knowledge. But it's so crucial to understand that the supernatural gifts of the Spirit must be rooted in the reality that God loves you. It must be rooted in the truth that you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. If we really want to be a Spirit-filled church, we must believe that God's love will not let us go. If you're still with me this morning, give me a good amen. 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 Here's the third thing. We must be characterized by biblical truth. Look with me at verse six. Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message. Some of your translations render that as the word in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. What message? Not the message of man. It was the Lord's message is confirmed a little bit later in verse eight. Again, that word message is better rendered as the word. That word in the Greek is the word logos, which is um, where we get our understanding of Jesus as the incarnate word and the Bible being the word of God. And so to be a truly spirit-filled community, you must be anchored in the word. The Holy Spirit will never show up, exercise himself, or do anything outside of what scripture has said. We must love the word. We must cherish the word. We must come underneath the word and long to be shaped by the truth and beauty of the word. We must push past our own sensibilities and contend with what the word of God says. In other words, if we truly want to be a spirit-filled church, we must be committed to both experiencing the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to eagerly desire and practice spiritual gifts, to passionately worship God and pursuing the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we must also be committed to knowing the word of God that is Jesus through the revelation of scripture. We must take serious the commands of God in the Bible because we believe his design for our lives is what's best and we must hide his word in our hearts and trust it as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. A lot of people have compartmentalized word and spirit. This is why I love Ethos Church. This is why we're planting cross and crown because we think that there should be a beautiful convergence of word and spirit. I had a well-intentioned uh, guy tell me uh, not too long ago, he said, Shane, when you get up there, man, don't be, don't be tied to your notes. Just let the spirit speak. 
And I, I get the sentiment. And like I said, he was well-intentioned. He meant nothing by it. But, but I believe this spirit is in the preparation. And the reason why I use notes is because what you don't need is a bunch of good ideas from Shane Huey. Lord knows nobody's coming to that church anyway. I want to uh, be prepared and I want to be spirit-led insofar as the Holy Spirit enables me and empowers me to preach this book. And it's the Holy Spirit that illuminates the truth of God's word to our hearts. John 16, when Jesus promises the sending of the Spirit, he calls him the Spirit of truth. We are promised that it's the Spirit of God that will lead us and guide us into truth. And he tells uh, the disciples the very next chapter, actually Jesus is praying rather, and he says, God sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It is the Spirit of God that inspired men to author these words, and it is that same Spirit that will illuminate and quicken these words and write these words on the hearts of his people. We must be, to be a spirit-filled church, we must be a church that is centered on the word of God. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Here's the fourth thing. Y'all still good? Evangelistic urgency. That is a mouthful. A lot of Christianese, when we say evangelistic evangelism, what we're talking about is sharing our faith, welcoming others into the love that we have found in Jesus. Look at verse eight. Paul says, the message of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith has become known everywhere. And uh, in other words, the gospel had gone viral as a result of the operation of the spirit in the Thessalonian church church. You have to understand this. And this is in beautiful alignment with what Jordan prayed for us earlier. The Holy Spirit is a sending spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't intended for you to get the warm fuzzies. The Holy Spirit has so much more for you than goosebumps and a few tears whenever the right worship song starts playing. The Holy Spirit is sending us out. The Spirit is sent to empower God's people to share the good news of the gospel and be a living demonstration of the love of God who needs so desperately the hope that we have found in Christ. If you want to know whether a person or community is truly operating in the power of the spirit you must look beyond whether or not they're gifted i've seen a lot of gifted people but gifting will not suffice in and of itself you can be gifted and not be operating in the power of the holy spirit you must even look beyond their lifestyle because it is possible to have the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience at least for a time apart from the power of the holy spirit one of the clearest indications as to whether or not somebody is truly operating in the power of the holy spirit is do they love the lost Are they sharing their faith? John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, says it like this. He says, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. A spirit-filled person is willing to take the risk, to lay it all on the line, to share the joy and hope that we have found in Jesus. Now, many of you might hear that, and you would say, well, I must not be filled with the Spirit because I'm not sharing my faith all that much. Please don't hear this as an indictment. Instead, hear it as an invitation. God, the Holy Spirit has so much more for you. We should not share our faith to alleviate some sense of guilt. We definitely should not share our faith 
exclusively out of duty or obligation, although there is an element of duty in it. Disciples make disciples. If you aren't making disciples, you are by definition something other than a disciple. But duty and obligation cannot be our only motivation for sharing our faith. Instead, we should share out of delight, out of the reality that We are so undeserving of God's love, but he so freely lavished it upon us as seen clearly through the death, life, death, and resurrection of his son, Christ. We should share this gospel because it is the best news that the world has ever heard. Another Charles Spurgeon quote. He says this, Charles Spurgeon says that he preached Christ because of the truth and beauty of the gospel. That should be our motivation. Because of the truth and beauty of the gospel, I see in the gospel of substitution a beauty beyond all things. I see in the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news of the Son of God, the truth of God. Only Christ can meet the perfect law. Only Christ can satisfy the justice of God. Only Christ can open the way for us into the holiest of all, into the presence of the Father. Only Christ can supply the needs of the bankrupt sinner. And only Christ can keep me from falling. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and who is able to present you faultless before the throne and the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To him be glory both now and forever. And here's the line, catch this. That's why it's necessary for me to preach the gospel. Because of the beauty of it. Because of the glory of it. Lord, let this be our motivation for being a sending church, for being a sent church, for sharing the good news. And here's the last thing I'll leave you with. Hunter, if you want to jump up here and play soft so I sound real spiritual right now. Here's one I want to end, verse nine. Paul says that the testimony of the, of the Thessalonian church was that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Idolatry is another Christianese word. Um, I think... Uh, What's the David Clarkson? He provides us with a helpful definition of idolatry. He defines idolatry as whenever the mind is set on anything more than God, whenever anything is more valued than God, more sought than God, more desired than God, more loved than God, then that is soul worship, which is due exclusively to God. John Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory, and we have a way of just keep cranking these things out. And here's the idol test. I want you to fill in this blank for me really quickly. I can't live without... Fill it in. Don't say it out loud. No need to put your sin out there. I can't live without... Maybe try this one on. If I had blank, then I would be happy. If you're filling those blanks with anything other than Jesus, you must be weary because it may be an idol in your life. For many of us, the, the go-to response is money. If I just had some sort of financial stability, if I could just have enough money to take a nice vacation, have a, a couple nice cars. For others, it might be some sort of success or status. God, if I could just get this job, this dream job, then I would finally be satisfied. For others, it might be a relationship status 
or a significant other. Some of you are struggling with your singleness and you, you think that if you just find your soulmate, they would somehow complete you. And the allure of idols is so tempting because not many of them are overtly sinful, right? There's nothing wrong in and of itself with having a little bit of money, being in a relationship, and achieving some manner or measure of status and success. But all of these things will be weighed and found wanting in your heart because at best they might provide for you some measure of momentary satisfaction, but they all have one thing in common. Eventually they go away. Do not tie your joy to something that will not last. But Paul says that this church, they were able to turn to God from their idols. But the mistake that we make is we continue to turn to our idols, searching for satisfaction, searching for purpose, searching for meaning. And these idolatrous desires will not go away until they are prevailed upon by a desire for something greater. It's not enough just to wish these desires away. Our hearts must be captured by something that is infinitely greater, infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more satisfying. Our hearts will not be satisfied. Augustine says it like this, our hearts are restless, Lord, until they find rest in you. Only Jesus can reach into the deepest recesses of your heart and satisfy the deepest longings. Which is why, I don't even know if I gave you the last point, passionate worship. Which is why a spirit-filled church should be full of passionate worship, which we're gonna practice here in a moment. And when I say worship, I'm not talking about some demonstrative, performative sort of something that you do with your body. I'm talking about Christ-exalting, soul-satisfying worship because you've seen in Jesus a surpassing beauty that will satisfy you unlike anything else this world ever could. May we be, may Ethos Church be a spirit-filled church because we've been captured by the beauty of Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit that frees us to see, maybe some finally for the first time, the beauty of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We love that verse, but if you keep reading, it keeps getting better. Verse 18, it says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that frees us to behold the beauty of Jesus and flood our hearts full affection to him so that we might be liberated to render to Christ the worship that is due exclusively to his name.